You are listening to the Techie Leadership Show with Bogdan and Andrei. Hello and welcome to the Techie Leadership Show. Today with me I have Steve Brown. He is a futurist, keynote speaker, author, and advisor with over 30 years of experience in high tech. He is the former futurist and chief evangelist at Intel Corporation. His consulting practice now coaches leaders on how to embrace new technology and um, how to drive innovation, automation, and digitization. Oh my God, my English today. Digitization. I think it's spelled wrong. Digitization. Digitization. Digitization through every aspect of their business. See, this is, the, this is the problem when English fails you and you promise to have a show that once you start taping, it goes on and on. <laughs> uh, Steve is the author of the Innovation Ultimatum, how six strategic technologies will reshape every business in the 2020s. He holds a Bachelor's of Science and a Master's of Engineering degree in microelectronic system engineering from Manchester University. Now he lives with his wife in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Steve, and welcome to the show. Hi, Andre. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. It was tough. It was tough, but I made I made through. <laughs> <laughs> you made it through my tortured bio, yeah. <laughs> yes, I made it. And I'm really, really curious because before I ask you like to add more about yourself, I'm really curious, what does a futurist do? Yeah, that's it's a very common question um, because you know we imagine a futurist being a guy who sits in a dark room and maybe smokes some good drugs and thinks some big thoughts. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not that. <laughs> so, okay. well, um, bummer, a futurist, bummer. yeah, bummer, yeah. So it's it's really about looking at uh, major trends and looking at how they will combine in the future over time. So what are those trends? Um, technology trends, of course. So I live in the world of AI and blockchain and augmented reality and sensors and all that good stuff um, and how they will develop over time. <laughs> Secondly, business trends. How will businesses use that technology to solve business problems? What are some new business models that might emerge and that sort of thing? And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, People trends. What do people want? Um, what are their relationships? What are they excited about? What are their aspirations in life? What are they scared of? And really understanding how people want will use technology to solve problems in their lives, to entertain themselves, to connect with each other more meaningfully, and so on. So as a futurist, I put all those trends together and I model what will be possible in a certain time frame, typically 10 years from now. Uh, I find any more than 10 years and it's not very helpful. Um, yes. And by knowing what's going to happen 10 years from now, you can start to then work back from the future and say, okay, here's where we need to be five years from now. Here's where we need to be two years from now. Here's what we do starting tomorrow. So it's, I'm, I'm an applied futurist which means I advise companies on how to use a futurism process of insights to help um, determine what their strategic product plans and strategic company plans are for next year and the year after. That sounds like an amazing job to have. 
it's really fun. And, and I get to work with lots of different industries, everything from the finance industry to you know, a lot of mortgage work I do, um, retail, healthcare, manufacturing, entertainment, you name it. It's, I'm a lucky boy. And Steve, if I could pry, like, what's one trend that you saw coming and you help companies like bank on it? Oh, lots. Um, I mean, usually what's it's the it's, best one. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I did a lot of work on the future of retail. I wrote a, a book on it in partnership with WPP, the big um, uh, agency, about six to seven years ago. And in it, you know, everything that I suggested might be possible in the future. Uh, it's all happening. You know, uh, since then, at the time we said drone delivery would be possible. And guess what? That's now looking yes. like it's going to come <laughs> to pass. Uh, that augmented reality would be part of the shopping experience in future. That's looking like it's going to be happening. Um, but just generally, um, you know, the, the move to e-commerce and the digitalization of the whole retail shopping experience uh, and the fulfillment that comes behind that. And you know, we've seen the rise of Amazon and um, Alibaba and other companies like it. Um, that's probably the, the most obvious, but um, you know, I've got some wrong too. <laughs> I said there'd never be <laughs> yeah. a flying car in our lifetime. And guess what? We're going to have that in the next couple of years as well. well. I've been waiting for, for a flying car for all my life. Haven't we all? According yeah. to the movies, we should have already have them, but they're not here so hopefully they're going to be um steve do you want to add anything else about yourself um you know i i, I started life as a nerd uh, so I have a couple of degrees in microelectronics so there was a time when i could design chips and write software i couldn't do that to save my life now quite honestly um but i'm i'm, I'm just fascinated by what technology will allow us to do. In particular, I'm, I'm interested in the future of work and, and how these technologies will allow us to not replace humans in the workforce, maybe for some jobs that are dangerous, boring, repetitive, but how we will use these technologies to elevate work, to help people not just be more productive, you know, which... As, as a worker in corporate America for myself for many years, it feels like, you know, you're constantly being whipped and told to be yes. more productive, right? And the tools you're given are just you know, pump out more in your eight or nine or 10 hours a day. Um, these new technologies are elevating us and enabling us to not just be more productive or efficient, but to be more creative, to be more intuitive, to be more empathetic, to make higher quality, better informed decisions. That's the stuff that fascinates me. And uh, you know, really thinking about using technology to make the world a better place. Uh, that's what I focus my practice on. I worked at Intel for over 30 years of my life. I left in 2016 and I set up my own practice uh, to help companies, big and small, to understand how they can use technology to make their businesses more innovative and to do good for people. That sounds really good. And when I'm thinking about, I don't understand why people are afraid that robots are going to come in and take their jobs. They're going to take the jobs that we as humans should not do. They're like the repetitive, as you said, like boring jobs. 
uh, it's not something we as humans were meant to do. We need more creative, in my opinion, more creative, more diverse jobs each day to be different at work. It's not the same day, <laughs> day in, day out, because it's not, it's not a great, it's not a great life. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, mechanization in the you know late seventh, the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, ninety-five percent of people worked in farming, and it was backbreaking, horrible work, and you were lucky to live to forty. Um, you know, since then yes. we've mechanized the fields, and less than three percent of people now work in agriculture. And you know, the average lifespan has gone shooting up. Quality of life, wealth generation. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if we use technology right, then it, we can do the right thing for humanity. And you know, have less people doing miserable, hard, physical labor, dangerous work. And I'm really curious, like what new jobs would appear because people are going to be available to do the work and new industries are going to, to spring up, uh, new opportunities, so it's going to be great. I want to not wait for the robots to march in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the, the challenge is how do you move people from you know, truck driving jobs or you know, agricultural jobs into new roles? And we don't have an automation problem. We have an education challenge. Yes, right? that's, that's a big challenge. That's the way we should be thinking about it. And... Leaders, we need good leaders to drive the change. So let's talk about leadership now, Steve. Sure. Um, well, let's start with the biggest leadership success story you've witnessed personally. You know, I'll pick one from my time at Intel. Great. Um, you know, back in the early mid eighties, uh, when the company was run by the legendary Gordon Moore um, of Moore's Law fame and Andy Grove. Uh, and I've met both men. Um, Andy, sadly, now no longer with us, but uh, Gordon lives on his uh, island in Hawaii. Um, you know, they, they were really challenged at the time because um, Intel was really in the memory business. And, you know, they were trying to figure out, well, what's, what should we be doing with this company? Um, because they were really under pressure from a lot of the Asian memory vendors who were making memory, selling it below cost, just dumping memory because it was a commodity. Um, and they were getting killed in the market. And they had to make a tough decision. And as leaders, they were able to step outside and say, okay, if we got fired, this is on a Friday. <laughs> if okay. we got fired today by the board and they brought in new people on Monday, what would they do? And very quickly they said, well, the first thing they do is they would jettison the memory business. They would get out of the memory business and put everything they have into this new microprocessor thing. And so they made the decision, you know, why do we have to be fired and new guys come and do that? We need to make that bold move. And so that was the decision they made. They said, when we come in on Monday, we start the move to get out of the memory business. And that was the beginning of the rise of Intel uh, to become you know, the multi-billion dollar company uh, that it is today. So it all started like with the leadership asking us, like if it would be fired, what would the new leadership do? And then doing that stuff? Yeah, and I think that that, that level of 
fearlessness, to be that bold. Uh, that was a very controversial and difficult decision to make because memory was a significant portion of Intel's business. You know, I would liken it uh, um, in a way to Steve Jobs's decision, right? He invested in the iPhone and you know, the Mac, when the iPhone came out, the Mac and the iPod were the most, the biggest part of Apple's business. iPod was yes. a significant part of Apple's business. He decided to essentially kill the iPod and eat it with the iPhone and then double down with the iPad, which then started to eat into the Mac business. So the Mac business is now, you know, less than 10% of Apple's business. And yet, you know, as of today, when we're recording this interview, Apple just became a $2 trillion company. Yes. And how, how did um, the leadership at Intel, when they decided to do this switch, how did they make it also become a reality? Because it's not that easy to steer a company, even it was still fairly big to, to switch direction. Yeah, I mean, when I joined Intel in 1985 as an intern, uh, there were 16,000 employees. Um, you know, now it's over 100,000. Um, you know, they were, I think to their credit, they were very open and honest with the employees. And they, they were very clear, this is the situation that we are in. These are the choices that we have. If we go down the route of continuing to try and fight it out in the memory business, this, the, our chances are slim. Um, if we go to none, maybe if we get out of the memory business and we focus a significant resources and talent on this new microprocessor thing, which seems to be panning out for us since the 4004 chip that first came out for Intel. Um, you know, we, we think we have a chance and here's why. And they told that story and they brought employees along with them and they had their, the employees behind them when they made that, that decision. And I think that's, that's one of the key things of leadership is to be able to tell those stories, to share a, a vision for the future, which is compelling and in which employees can see themselves and their company. Uh, and, you know, very, very clear and honest about the dangers but also clear-eyed and, and um, uh, open about what are the strengths you think that will propel you through. So it's about a combination of being bold, but also being very open. And Andy always talked about these things called strategic inflection points. Anybody that's read about management theory, leadership theory, will be very familiar with that concept because Andy wrote a whole book about it. Uh, this was one of the strategic inflection points that Andy wrote about in his book. Uh, and he described it that way. And so the employee, I mean, he, he actually did almost, um, you know, he, he taught employees management and business skills, business strategy skills as part of the way he brought them along. He educated them so that they could understand why he was making the decisions he made and could support him in those decisions. So it wasn't just expressing his vision for the future. It was also coming with a hefty size, side order of education. Yeah, I mean, you have to equip people to understand why you're making the decisions you make. You know, I think some companies make the, the mistake of, of treating their employees as being too dumb to understand, you know, the, the high, big, you know, thoughts that they're having in the boardroom. Um, you know, you need to treat your employees with respect. And 
uh, don't talk down to them, bring them along with you. Oh, yes. I think that's a key part of that philosophy. You know, Intel is a, was a, and is still an egalitarian society. Um, everybody has this, no one has offices. If you're an executive, everybody has the same sized cube. There are no parking spots with names on them. Right. And so that was part of that philosophy, which came from Gordon Moore and the other founder, Bob Noyce, um, is that everybody's the same level. We're all in this together and you need to bring everybody with you. And they actually showed people that everybody is on the same level and mm-hmm. you can have like the, those conversations. And the thing that is really inspiring is the fact and something that I think is crucial is to realize that you as the originator, let's say, of the vision, you might be, you might think that because you're so close to it, you might feel like everybody knows it, but you need to tell it again and again and again and again uh, to the point where you're bored to say it one more time. But yeah. that that extra <laughs> telling of it really helps and really gets people rallied together and dri- driven to towards the, the future. Yeah, I worked in executive communication group at Intel for a number of years and supported their leaders in communicating to employees. And you know, it was, you, you can't just tell people things once. It takes, you know, some, some people say it takes nine times before a complex idea really truly sinks in. So you have to tell them, tell them again, tell them again, and to your point, until they're really sick of hearing about it, <laughs> and then they might remember it and really take it on board. Exactly. And Steve, and leadership, not everything is rosy and not everything works out <laughs> as, as it should. Yeah. So what is the biggest le- leadership failure you had the unfortunate experience of witnessing? So I won't name names because, you know, Perfect. I'm a nice There's guy. There's no need for names. Yeah, but I, I think the biggest leadership failing I have seen is leaders who, who, who ruled by fear. And, you know, by shouting at people and making demands and punishing people when they missed deadlines or deliverables, um, you know, that creates a culture which is corrosive. It's just, it is not a place where anybody wants to work. And the biggest downside of that culture is that bad news gets watered down. And... So anytime a states report is given from a low level, it might be, you know, a a dashboard with lots of red lights flashing on it. But as it goes up to the next level, you know, some of those red lights turn to amber and, you know, one turns to green and then it goes up and up and up. So eventually once you get up to that leader who rules by fear, the dashboard's all green lights, right? So (laughs) what happens is they don't know there's, there are problems and they can be significant problems in the organization and therefore they are running blind and don't take steps to fix them. And then there's a big surprise, right? And I've seen that happen many, many times. And so I'm always an advocate for leaders who are inclusive, who, uh, are, who rule by inspiration and, and inspire their people to great acts rather than scaring them into working you know, many, many hours. Uh, because that culture of fear never leads to good results. Yes, you said a culture of fear, and it's true. I've I've never seen it work, and that's that's the main way it gets. Basically, it assures its downfall is the fact that people 
will avoid at all costs to say what what are the big problems that they're trying right. to keep under wraps day in and day out and then by the time you find <laughs> the leader finds out what what is going on really it's already too late because he finds out because it cannot be masked anymore there's no prevention <laughs> that you can do to stop it it's already too late it because it's it becomes like a, a sort of cancer inside the business yeah it's it's a, it's only a short term strategy you might get some results in the short term but medium to long term it's a disastrous strategy yes it is and it's something that i learned like um, from my parents because they would never punish me for anything um, so I would talk and tell them everything and they would accumulate like a whole <laughs> list of stuff and I would get punished later for all of them. <laughs> but it wouldn't seem like because it was due to my talking, it was something like coming from the blind side, like, well, what's going on there? Which I don't recommend you do, <laughs> which I don't recommend you do. But the the key principle is of just encouraging your people to talk and Make sure, make sure that even if they made a mistake, make them know and feel safe to come and tell you right. because it's better to fix it the day it happened than a year later. Very true. Uh, Steve, with all your experience, especially working in high tech mm -hmm. and being a futurist, I'm really curious, what is your leadership philosophy? I think I've already revealed some of it um, with my comments about, you know, what's bad. Um, you know, I, I believe in elevating talent. I, I've led uh, small and larger teams and I've always tried to lead from the front, um, but to paint a, you know, paint a compelling vision and, and always answer the question, uh, which, you know, you, you can, we call it with them. What's in it for me? right? You can create and paint this grand vision, but if you don't explain to everybody that works for you, what's in it for them if you reach that vision? Um, why, you know, why could they feel good about that? Why are they giving you their discretionary time, maybe working a little on a weekend or putting a little extra effort in a meeting? Um, why is it worthwhile? And if you don't tell that story, I think you're you're leaving you're leaving stuff on the table, right? It's if you want to get the most out of your teams, you need to inspire them, you need to excite them about where you're going as an organization, and you need to tell them why it matters, right? If you can't explain what's the human impact of doing this, why is this going to be good for people, for our customers, for you? For your families, if you can't tell that story and, and link all those dots together, you probably shouldn't be a leader. So that, that's my philosophy has always been start with purpose. What is the purpose of our organization? What is the purpose of this project that you're working on? What will be the results that it will yield that you will feel proud of? That when you look back on this time, you go, you know what? I worked extra hard on that because it made me feel good and it made me feel good because of these reasons. So to me, leadership is a lot about storytelling, being able to tell stories about the imagined future and being able to convince people um, to come with you on a journey because they share that same vision. So you know, important leadership skills 
are strong storytelling skills. It's actually one of the things that I, I teach now as I teach storytelling to executives to help them to inspire their teams. Oh, you teach storytelling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a, <laughs> and it came out of the fact that um, Intel's CEO at the time, Paul Ottolini, asked me, he said, you know, he, he recognized that Intel's leadership needed to have stronger to- storytelling capabilities. And he asked me to go research it and put together a, a training class for all of Intel's leadership. So I did that and I still have, it's different now um, because I'm, I'm no longer with Intel, but I, I still teach that kind of capability. I think it's so important. Um, you know, it really is. It's and and Simon Sinek, um, who I really enjoy, I've met once, um, Simon says something about leadership, which I think is so simple, but so profound. And he says, leaders only need one thing, followers. And yeah. it's, right? it's, it's that simple. And you don't want people who work for you who do things because you tell them. Right? You want people who are following you because they believe in you as a leader and they're because they believe in your vision and they're following you. And you know, everything you do should be about creating followers, not people who are scared or there for the paycheck or whatever other reason it might be. And I guess that the best way to do it is through storytelling and being, being really good at telling stories from which people can understand like, if this becomes reality, I'm also going to win because I, I'm getting this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and having reward mechanisms that make it clear what are the behaviors that you expect from people, you know, and to, to reward the behaviors you want, even if that is failure sometimes. You know, if you, if you have a risk-averse culture, the only way you fix that is by rewarding failure and highlighting someone who, who failed but they failed trying to do the right thing and they learned from that failure and moved forward. So, you know, you have to have a reward structure um, and methodology that matches against that vision and, and, and brings the right behaviors out of your employees. Well, you have to be a really strong leader to be able to reward failure and make it seem like, or be like people to perceive it like, Yes, it's not like a ploy or something like that. It's genuine because if you're rewarding failure, but people can see that you wouldn't want to do it, you're grinning your teeth and being all angry, it's not good. Yeah, I mean, you don't reward all failure. If someone's (laughs) consistently doing stupid stuff, you have to uh, take action in a different way. But someone who's taking an informed risk, they know when they walk in something that it's high risk, but they're taking that risk because they know that the rewards, if they reach high, will be significant. And they, you know, they, they reach high, they don't quite make it, it fails, but they learn from it and you can apply that forwards. That needs to be celebrated. Yes. And Steve, now I would like to use your powers of perceiving the future. And... How do you see leadership in the future? How do you see it evolving, changing, or, or is it going to be the same as it's been until now? Well, I think the hierarchical ideas of leadership um, with organizations with someone at the top, um, you know, which is particularly prevalent still in the Asian uh, countries, 
Um, but it's, you know, you still find other parts of the world in more traditional companies. I think that starts to give way to a much more matrixed um, set of relationships and thinking about leaders as being in a supportive role rather than being at the top, right? Almost flip the org chart upside down. Um, and I, I think leaders are going to be working in a much more dynamic situation where maybe org charts don't even exist anymore. And we're drawing from talent pools where for a particular project, which might be for three months, six months, two years, we assemble the right talent pool, a group of people from yes. that talent pool. They come together for a period of time. They work on that project and then they go back into the pool to be sent into new projects. So a much more dynamic workforce. And ultimately, you know, we may move to a model where, um, you know, at the moment you, there's this notion of, well, I'm a contractor or I'm a full-time employee. Yes. I think that becomes a continuum where uh, you can be both a contractor and a full-time employee. Um, and maybe you're working for multiple companies at the same time with, with a relationship that's more than a contractor, but less than full-time. Uh, and so for leaders, they're going to have to be able to navigate that space and to be inspiring talent in, you know, it, inspiration of talent becomes even more important because you're in this dynamic environment where people don't necessarily work for you in a line management relationship. They're an assembled team yes. that are there to perform a task and it's your job to inspire them to get over the finish line and then they move on to the next thing. So being ready to, to work in that environment uh, is one thing. I think the, the other thing I would share is we're moving to a world where technology will augment us, will elevate our capabilities. Um, everything from improving our creativity and AI is going to be a great partner in that, in, our, in boosting our intuition, helping us make higher quality decisions. What that means is we're moving to a hybrid workforce, workers who are now a combination of human intelligence and machine intelligence, human physicality and dexterity and machine strength uh, robotic strength and um, endurance and stamina. If you think about exoskeletons, that sort of thing. So what, you, what that means is managers and leaders are now presiding over a blended workforce that are a combination of human and machine. And you know, I'm, I'm saying this and people listening probably thinking, yes. He's been, he really has been smoking something. That sounds like sci-fi. <laughs> we are not far away from that. And I can give you examples of, of, to bring that to life. What it means, though, is that the, the CHRO, the head of HR, and the CIO, the, the person who manages IT, are now best friends in an organization. And leaders have to think about their workforce as being this blend of human and machine and keep, keep investing in both the human talent and the machine talent. So let me give you an example to bring that to life. Okay. Um, so uh, Autodesk, um, they make computer-aided design tools. They've started to use uh, a technology called generative adversarial networks. It's a, a flavor of AI, which will take a design, a human creator design, could be everything from a, an okay. industrial valve or a table or a chair, anything, a building, and then it takes that design and creates hundreds or thousands of variants. So it riffs on it. 
And then the designer can look at those options and look at the design space and pick the one that they think is best. So the, the output is a combination of human and AI um, effort. And the, the final design is not something that the human could do there on their own. And it's not something that the AI could do on its own. And this technique yes. is called generative design. And this is something that's showing up first for engineers and architects and designers. This technology of generative design will help to boost the creativity and imagination and intuition of, I think, all knowledge workers going forward. And that's going to change the future of work forever. Uh, and it's going to become more and more important for leaders to be able to choose the right combination of technology and human human resources to put together and to make sure that the the right levels are are present there because it doesn't work if it's too much on on either side in my opinion yeah and i think the diversity of teams will change in the future so i already described one new dimension of diversity which is humans and non-humans working together but i think teams will become more diverse because as we try and solve more complex human challenges, you only can solve those by bringing together very different groups of people. So think about self-driving cars, for example. You don't just need mechanical engineers, petrochemical engineers, electrical engineers, you know, and even software programmers. Um, you also now need ethicists, philosophers, who are going to help you think through when the car has to make a difficult human decision, what decisions should it make, right? Yes. So, so now you have this very diverse team of people who, don't, who can't necessarily communicate well with each other because they speak different languages. Um, and they certainly don't trust each other because if you're in the social sciences, so the soft sciences, you think that engineers are knuckle-dragging apes. And if, you, if you're an engineer, you think all of these philosophy people are frou-frou idiots, right, who have, who have nothing interesting to say. And so as a leader, you now have to build mutual respect across these di very different domains of expertise and talent and bring them together. So I think that is also going to be a very important skill for leaders of the future is to build this culture of diversity and mutual respect. And being able to inspire people with such varied backgrounds, that is, you have to have lots of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be willing. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is um, this notion of pie-shaped people, um, where you, you're, the best people you want to hire are going to be ones who have, you know, a, a, across the board, a little bit of knowledge about everything but then they have deep expertise in two areas. So like the shape of the, the character pie. pie. Um, so I mean, example would be somebody who is you know, trained as a medical doctor and also trained in AI. That's a great person to help you bridge those two worlds and to help you figure out how can I use AI to do diagnostics and help us to see patients in a whole new way in the world of healthcare, for example. Yeah, and it's a hard blend to find and Funny enough, when the, 
sometimes you get like a CV uh, application. Uh, I I know this like from companies. You get like a person uh, a perfect blend, and they say that no, uh, no. I think we're going to skip this one. Uh, <laughs> yep. Oh, well, it happens. Um, and Steve, for aspiring leaders, what would be your top three leadership tips you would have for them? Um, be kind on the way up because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've seen too many leaders who uh, are not very kind on the way up and their, their fall is pretty fast. Yes. Um, so, you know, you, you have to be tough to be a leader. Um, so it doesn't mean you have to be super nice to everybody all the time. Uh, but be fair, be tough and fair and uh, kind. Uh, so that'd be the first one is just sort of a, a general human outlook. Um, I think make sure that you have a clear vision that you can communicate to people that inspires them. Lead by inspiration, not by fear. We've already talked about that one. And then third, let me think. Um, take time to be human. You know, leaders often get wrapped up in, you know, being a corporate person, towing the party line, you know, not revealing much about themselves as a human. Um, we all, we're all, not, we're not stupid, right? <laughs> um, yes. the, people in your, the people in your teams are human. They don't want to work for a robot. Um, and they won't, they don't trust a robot. So, be, be human, be open about your own fears and concerns. Um, be honest about the challenges ahead. Um, and, you know, reveal something of yourself personally, because that will build a relationship with your teams that, al that, that will allow them to follow you more passionately. Uh, if you're honest about who you are, because, people are able to spot that, that dishonesty or that lack of uh, authenticity a mile away. So, you know, or a kilometer away if you're in Europe. <laughs> um, so, you know, be human and, and don't be afraid to be human because I think often leaders want to be private and hold that back and that will do them a disservice. That is true. And I would really like to ask you, Referring like to the second tip you have about having a clear vision, since you since this is like these are like tips for people getting into management or wanted to get into management. What do mm -hmm. you do if the company doesn't have like an inspiring vision and you want to be a good manager? How do you provide? Do you provide a new vision? Do you talk with management to get a new vision, or do you try to translate the vision that is there into something more enticing? Yeah, I mean, vision statements are universally poorly done, right? There are some great yes. ones. There are many awful ones. And what, what makes a good mission, vision statement versus a bad vision statement? Um, a good vision statement is one everybody can remember, right? And, and it's usually linked to a core human purpose. You know, a vision statement is not make more money for the company, right? That, that's, that inspires nobody. Um, and very often you see these vision statements, you go on, you know, these company websites and you look at them 
And they're like 25 words. They've been written by a committee of people who all wanted to throw something in, you know, and they're meaningless because no one can remember them and they don't say anything. So the best vision statements are really built around a purpose. So I advise people to start with purpose. What are you going to do for people? And, you know, you look at uh, Coca-Cola. There's this crystal clear. They're there to refresh people, right? That's what they do. Wow. They refresh people. And at Intel? At Intel, um, you know, we, we did a really poor job of it. And I criticized Intel leadership all the time on this. Um, but really, I think it's about democratizing technology, democratizing uh, technology and, and making it available to more people and improving that technology consistently. Um, so you know, the vision statements I propose were to advance and, and democratize um, microprocessor technology. technology. Um, but you know, look at companies that do it well. Um, and by the way, you know, you, you look at a company like Coca-Cola and one of their um, mission statements, their vision statements was Coca-Cola in arm's reach of every human being on earth. What does that tell you about the company? It tells you they're a distribution company. That's why when you go on vacation to, you know, some weird part of Thailand and you're on the beach there, you'll see the Coca-Cola refrigerator and the Coca-Cola umbrellas on the sand, yes. you know, because it's all about distribution and refreshing people and being within arm's reach. That kind of clarity is what's required for every organization. And if you, it's your question, if you, if you work in an organization that does not have that clarity, find it for your individual group. Be very clear about here's our purpose. This is what we do. Even if it's for internal, if you're working in IT, you know, our job is to make our employees uh, love their IT infrastructure, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, but be very clear on the purpose and make it short and memorable. I also teach classes for um, leaders on how to craft vision statements, mission statements, purpose statements, and, and values, how to you know, really focus those down so that they're memorable and have impact. Yes, and Steve, I have like an inkling that you are a voracious reader. Uh, so I'm curious, what is the book that had the most profound impact on you? You know, I, I think about that question. There's, I, I can't think of a book where I think, oh my God, that book changed my life. Um, so let me just tell you about the book that I'm reading right now, which is called The Spatial Web. Um, I'm only partway through it, but I'm finding it a fascinating distillation of ideas about the way that computing will evolve to the next uh, era. And a lot of it touches on the same sort of topics that I have in my book, The Innovation Ultimatum, but it, it packages them in a different way that's certainly getting me thinking. I, I would think it's a companion book to the one that I wrote, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that was one I'd recommend right now, The Spatial Web. And, and the premise of it is, you know, the web 1.0 was PCs and the web. Uh, web 2.0 was this two-way conversation with social media and mobile and cloud. And then, so what's the third version of the web, which uh, I believe in this book also believes is about augmented reality, artificial intelligence, sensors, blockchain, um, and creating a fifth dimension. Uh, this is my terms, not theirs, but taking every object on earth and giving it an additional dimension, uh, the data dimension, so that we can start to um, 
to, to allow the web to expand out of screens and to fill the physical world, which is why it's called the spatial web. And don't you think that it's going to be like a data overload, having all this information at, at your fingertips all the time? Um, if that happens, then we've, then we've got it wrong. Um, that's why you need intelligent technology on the front end to help us be selective and pick the things that are relevant to us. Otherwise, yeah, the, when we put on, if we put on our, our new augmented reality glasses and we look at the world and it looks like the Las Vegas strip all the time with flashing <laughs> lights and coupons and, you know, that, no one wants that. So, yeah, we have to be very careful how we implement that. Yeah. And I'm finding like more and more um, a trait that it's good to for especially our education system to to teach our children is to be able to find the correct information and put things together, not mm -hmm. to memorize all the information, but finding it and be, being able to say like this is the solution to the questions that I have and being right about it because now you don't have like the issues you had like 50 years ago or maybe even late more time ago then you didn't have the information available now the problem mm -hmm. is we have too much information and we, sometimes it's really hard to know what is true and what is false and what is useful yeah we need to learn how to think not how to remember because the internet can remember for us yes. so learn how to think learn how to critically assess that information and its sources Exactly. And Steve, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Well, a couple of ways. Um, first off, a lot of the topics I talk about today um, are in my latest book. So the Innovation Ultimatum um, was published back in February. And it's a how-to guide on how to use technology. So if you're a leader uh, and you think, well, you know, AI sounds interesting, but I don't really know how it would solve business problems for me, this is the book for you. Similarly, you know, sensors, blockchain, augmented reality, 5G and satellite networks, robotics, you know, autonomous machines of all kinds. Um, this is a, a handbook on technology innovation. So that's the first way. If you're interested in the kind of stuff that I talk about, um, I wrote that book for leaders to help them dig in in a bit more detail. It is a book about technology, but it is not written in technical terms. So it's an easy read, I hope. Uh, second way is you can find me at my website, baldfuturist.com. So B-A-L-D futurist.com. You can't see me in this interview. Uh, Andre, you can see me, but uh, <laughs> your listeners can't, but uh, I have no hair at all. Uh, so baldfuturist.com. And on there, you can read my blog. You can check out a bunch of videos I've done, uh, learn a bit more about my work and uh, the kind of things I talk about. That sounds really great, Steve. And I'm going to put uh, links to your book and to your website in the show notes so people can more right, easily find them. Um, and I highly recommend people to pick up your book, The Innovation Ultimatum. I'm planning to get a copy myself and read it because I'm interested, like, wh what's the vision for the future? Where, where are we heading and what is happening? How to apply it, especially nowadays in the business environment, to be able to be ahead of the curve. Well, yeah, I, mean, I wrote this book with a 10-year horizon. So it's written in how technology will reshape every business in the 2020s. With COVID, um, it's accelerated everything. So a lot of my clients are coming to me and saying, hey, we're taking our five-year plan and we want to implement it this year. So a lot of the stuff I write about in my book, I thought would take the whole 2020s. 
I now think it's going to happen in the next five to seven years. So buckle up. I hope cool. the book is available to you all. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for being on the show. I've yeah, learned pleasure. a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank yeah, you. really nice talking to you. Bye. Bye. That was today's episode. Tune in daily. Rate, like, subscribe, and share, please. Oh, you can find further info and materials in the show notes on techyleadership.com, including links to the guest book recommendations.